Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 21. We'll be starting in verse 15. That's 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the chairs underneath you. You can grab one of those chair Bibles, and you can find this passage on page 255. When you get there, please stand to your feet if you're able to, and we will honor God's word by reading together. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again a war with the Philistines at Gob, when Sibachai the Hushatite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jareh-Oregem, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, Uh, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called, from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was at his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them lightning and routed them then the channels of the sea were seen the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils he sent from on high he took me he drew me out of many waters he rescued me from my strong enemy from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me they confronted me in the day of my calamity but the lord was my support He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness 
According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is, a, is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me as soon as they heard of me. They obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. The exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Pray together. God, thank you so much for the grace that you have shown us through saving us in Christ. God, thank you for the grace that you have shown us through bringing us together as the people of God, for allowing us to be the body of Christ and brothers and sisters of the family of God. God, thank you for your grace that you've shown us through giving us the gift of your word. And God, as we turn our attention now to this passage of scripture, Lord, we would ask that you would use it to minister to your people today. God, we pray that you would free us from distractions. We pray if we're tired today that you would give us energy. Lord, we pray that we would focus in on this scriptural text because we believe that scripture is inspired by you. It's given by you. You're the author of every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter. And so God, we want to hear your voice today. We want to hear your message today. 
And God, we want to be changed as a result of hearing. Lord, as we hear things from your word today, we pray that we would receive James's admonition that we not just be hearers of your word only, but that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to be doers of the word. So God, we submit ourselves during this time to the teaching and preaching of your word. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to minister to us and to change us. And we ask all of this now in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. We better get right into this. I know we've got a lot of text to cover. But I assure you, I've worked really hard this week to make sure that this sermon is hopefully not longer than a normal sermon. It's a collective exhale in the room here. Everything's like, whew. Uh, There's two parts to the the text that we had Gabe read for us this morning, and these two parts are related to each other. The first part is, could be described this way, it's David's victories over the Philistines, and it's that remaining portion of chapter 21. And then the second part of our text today is David's victory song, which encompasses the whole chapter of chapter 22, 51 long verses Together, And so this is the breakdown of what we've read here together. And we're going to work through this this morning. We're really going to spend our time camping out, though, in that second part in David's victory song. Uh, But before we get there, let me just make a couple of brief observations for us from that first section, from this passage about David's victories over the Philistines. The first thing I want to point out for us is that Uh, These battles that are talked about here at the end of chapter 21 are occurring late in David's life and late in David's reign. If you look down at your Bible, you'll notice there in verse 15 of chapter 21, we see a line that is not often said of the man David. It says, and David grew weary. He was in battle. One of these giants, these Philistine champions was ready to kill him. And it might have worked because David had grown weary, if not for the aid of one of David's warriors. So David grew weary. But we also notice in verse 17 that after David uh, didn't have the strength to defend himself in battle and he had that near-death experience, we read this in verse 17. Then David's men swore to him, "You you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So there was a ban on David actually entering into combat from this day forward. They're like, if you die in battle, the lamp in Israel is quenched. So you got to stay back. We'll fight for you. So this is late in David's reign. He's an older king. He's an older man when these battles are taking place. The next thing I want us to observe is, I want you to notice that the focus is not on the Philistine army here. Over and over again, the focus here at the end of chapter 21 is on the Philistine champions. There's four of them here in these verses, and these are giants, we read, that David and his men actually had to contend with in battle. So there's these four champions. We read about them in these verses, and verse 22 tells us that these four were descended from the giants in Gath. So that's where they came from, the Philistine capital city of Gath, Um, And they were descended from the giants who evidently lived in Gath. So Gath evidently was a giant factory producing generations of these giants. 
It's interesting because one of these giants is actually named Goliath, which should ring a bell. And he was also so big that he had a spear that was the weight of a weaver's beam. That's the exact same thing that said about Goliath version 1.0 back in 1 Samuel 17, the giant from Gath that David slew with a sling and a stone. So this here is Goliath 2.0. I mean, it's just generations of, of these giants, these mighty men that are coming out of Gath and from Philistine territory. But Gath's not just a giant factory. It's also a little bit of a freak show. Uh, one of these giants has six fingers on both of his hands and six toes on both of his feet. And he's massive in size and in scale. Um, we also know there were a lot of crazy people in the city of Gath. Um, if you'll remember back when David was a young man and he was on the run from King Saul, he fled to Gath and he comes into the court of the king of Gath and all of the king's advisors are there and David panics and he ends up acting like he's a madman. He lets his, his spit run down his beard and he's acting like a crazy person and the king of Gath says this to his advisors. He says to them, do I lack madmen? Why have you brought him to me? In other words, my court is filled with crazy people. I don't need one more. So this city of Gath, again, it's a little bit of a freak show. It's, it's maybe the Vegas of its day. There's giants here. There's crazy people. But we need to hone in on the fact that these four men that are listed here are significant to the Philistines. These are their champions. These are their giants. These are the ones that were leading them in their battles with Israel. Or let me put it differently to you. These were the, the specific men that the Philistines were putting their hope in. The army was like, hey, we'll put these guys out there and they're going to carry the day. They're going to get the victory for us. They were the very best warriors among the Philistines. In fact, over in David's victory song, notice what he says in 2 Samuel twenty-two eighteen. 18. He says this, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Some of David's enemies were too mighty from a human standpoint for David to overcome. Certainly these giants, these champions from Gath, here in this text, and even the first champion, Goliath, that David fought when he was a young man, they were too mighty for David in his own strength. But ultimately, they were no match for David and his men because they were no match for David's God. And I love that. Because it reminds me that even the very best that the enemy can throw at us is no match for our God. I mean, think about that. These are the best that the Philistines had. They throw all their might at David and at Israel and they're no match for Israel's God. You might be in a place right now where you feel like the enemy is working overtime against you. Maybe it's been a really challenging season. He might be attacking your workplace right now. Things are not going right there. Things are going wrong there. Maybe you're out of work. He might be attacking your kids right now could be your marriage, could be your thought life. He might be throwing temptations back in your face that you thought were a thing of the past. Satan's an intelligent enemy. He's no fool. He's intelligent. He studies you. He looks for weaknesses. He looks for vulnerabilities. Peter says he's like a roaming lion. He's moving around and he's seeking someone to devour. What are their weaknesses? What are their 
their, their vulnerabilities that I can exploit to attack this child of God and bring them down. He strategizes against us and yet we're reminded this morning again that even the very best that he can throw at you is no match for our God. And so like David, we need to just trust in the Lord. These mighty Philistine champions, according to verse 22, fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And it was in light of these victories that God had given to David and his servants and the nation of Israel that David then composes a song. And that song is recorded for us in all of chapter 22. It's David's victory song, essentially, celebrating the victories that God had given to him. And that's actually the sermon title for today, David's Victory Song. I I told you we'd camp out there, so let's dive in because there's 51 verses here. So uh, let's dive right into this victory song. But again, it's, it's the victories that God gave David that now cause him to compose a song. Let's look at the introduction to it in verse 1 of chapter 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we see here that this is David's song. He spoke these words to the Lord. This was a song that he gave to the Lord. And the circumstances that brought about this song, we read, are they came about on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, this is significant for you to know. This victory song in 2 Samuel chapter 22 is actually recorded again in Scripture. You can find this victory song twice. It's here, and it's also Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is identical with a couple of minor variations, but it's the exact same song recorded for us again in Psalm 18. Most scholars, however, believe that Psalm 22 is the original, and then Psalm 18 was later taken and adapted slightly and used in the Psalter. And since, Psalm, or since uh, 2 Samuel 22 places this song toward the end of David's reign, it suggests that this is not a song that David composed in response to a single victory, like after the day that he defeated Goliath or something like that. But rather, it suggests to us as readers that this is a song that David composed, he wrote in response to his reflections on a lifetime of victories that God had given to him. As David's an older man, he's able to look back and see time and time again, different foes, different enemies were threatening him, and yet over and over and over again, his God was there to save him and to deliver him. And so he composes this beautiful, powerful, colorful song of praise and worship to the Lord. Now, I've broken the song up into five divisions, and I've given each of these divisions a heading so we can kind of get our heads around what's going on in each of these sections. The first division is verses two through four here, and the heading for this division is the God who saves. The God who saves. David's song here begins with a Godward focus. He sings of who God is and what God has done for him. And what has God done for him? Well, let's read it again and see. Verse 2. He said, The Lord is my rock 
and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So what has God done for David? In short, we can say that God has saved him. David calls the Lord his deliverer in verse 2. He says that God is the horn of his salvation in verse 3. David calls him my savior and says, you save me from violence in verse 3. And in verse 4, it is God who saved David from his enemies. So what has God done for David? He has saved him from all of his enemies. And notice here how David describes the God who saves. He's David's shield. He's David's fortress. He's David's stronghold. He's David's rock. He's the one in whom David can find refuge. You know, when David was on the run from King Saul, he found refuge literally in the rocks and in the caves of the wilderness. And those places became his refuge. They were his strongholds and his fortresses. Later, when he was on the run again from his son Absalom, who was trying to usurp his throne and kill him, he fled to the wilderness and he was taking refuge again in caves in the wilderness that were these rocks and these places that were his stronghold and his fortress. And just as these rocks and caves were a fortress and a stronghold for David, at these critical points in his life, David can say, yeah, 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 that was true. But ultimately, it's the Lord who has been my rock and my fortress and my stronghold. He's the one that has become my place of refuge. Every single time that David throughout his life was in danger, with every new crisis that was looming in this man's life, he called to the Lord and he found that God was faithful, that God was there to be a refuge, that God would save him and deliver him. And friends, it is this fact that causes David to believe that God is worthy of being praised. It is this fact that causes David to say, I need to sing a song to that God. I need to praise that God. I mean, look at the connection again in verse 4. He says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So God's worthy to be praised. Why? Because he says, I am saved from my enemies. So the logic of it is, whenever I call on the Lord, he saves me. Therefore, he's worthy of being praised. Have you noticed that it's the very same reality that gives rise to all of our worship songs that we sing? I mean, think about it. What's the common theme in every song we sing? Is it not that, that God has saved us? Is it not that somehow, way, in every song of praise that we sing together, we are celebrating the fact that God has saved us, that he's delivered us from sin and death? And it is the reality that God has saved us that leads us to praise and worship him. Nobody is scared into worship. You might be scared into obedience, right? These, these threats of being damned to hell, you might get scared and say, okay, I'm going to try to, to get things right in my life and earn God's favor. You might be scared into obedience, but nobody's scared into worship. 
I mean, true heartfelt worship where your heart is just broken open before the Lord and you love him and you delight in him and you want to sing songs of praise to him, that only comes through an understanding of and an experience of God's salvation. That only flows out of a heart of a person who has been saved by the Lord, who knows, I once was lost in my sin, I once was destined for hell, but God stepped in and he rescued me and he delivered me and he saved me and that causes us to worship. Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much, loves much. That's the connection. He saves us and then we delight in him and we worship him with our lives. So David begins his song from a place of worship. He's praising the God who saves him. Well, saves from what, we might ask? What does God save David from? And by extension, what does God save us from? Well, this gets us to the second division, which covers verses 5 through 20, to which I've given the heading, save from all our troubles. All of them, every single trouble that we have, God is the one who saves us from them. Look at verse 5. Let's read 5 and 6 together. David says, for or because. So again, I'm, I'm praising the Lord. He's worthy of my praise. For or because, he says, the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. David lived his life under near constant threat of mortal danger. Most of us have had very few situations probably in our lives that we would describe as like a near-death experience where we really, really believed that we might not make it through, that death was knocking on the door of our life, so to speak. But David's life was unique. It was not like ours. He, throughout his life, had many episodes like that, many near-death experiences, I mean, all the way back to when he was a young boy tending his father's sheep. He was attacked by a mountain lion and he was attacked by a bear at a different point and he fought them in hand-to-hand combat and killed them. That didn't have to work out that way. He could have been killed by the lion or the bear. Then as a teenager, he goes out and he fights against Goliath, the Philistine champion and Goliath's in armor from head to toe with a gigantic shield and a gigantic spear in his hand. And David's running out there with no armor and a sling and five stones. And he could have died there. It was a near-death experience. And then as a young man, he's running from King Saul. For about a decade of his life, he's being chased as public enemy number one in the nation of Israel. And Saul and all of his army are focused in on this one man trying to capture him and kill him. He was on the run for his life. As the general of Israel's army and later the king of Israel's army, there were constant battles to be fought and there were enemies who were focused on him trying to kill him in battle. And then of course, as we've recently studied together, late in life, When he should be in the golden years, right? Just riding into the sunset. His 401k should be maturing at this point. Things should be awesome. He should be traveling to Spain with his spouse. No, his son Absalom rises up in rebellion and pursues his father and tries to kill David. It's as if in this man's life, death was constantly knocking at the door. And this explains why death and the grave are pictured here 
like snares that are trying to capture him. Snares are little traps that you would put out to hunt small game and try to capture them. And he says, that's what death is like. Everywhere I walked, everywhere I stepped, it was like there was death there, there was the grave there, and I'm just barely avoiding it over and over again. Death and the grave are also pictured there in verse 6, like cords or ropes that are trying to pull him down into the abyss. Again, this is a man whose life was in mortal danger constantly. And so there were many moments in David's life where he was looking at the circumstances in front of him and he was saying to himself, I'm not sure if I'm going to get through this. I can't see how I'm going to make it through this moment. You ever been there? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you were faced with some challenge or some crisis or some circumstance that was so intense to you that you're looking at that everything that's going on and, and you're saying, I don't, I don't see how I can get through this. I mean, just the anxiety and the stress of this feels like it's going to kill me. I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. David was there constantly in his life. And whenever we're there, we need to learn to do what David did. Because here when David found himself, and again, this song is written as sort of a, an overview of his life's experience. Whenever David felt like the cords of death were entangling around him, whenever he was in that distressing place, whenever he was looking forward and saying, I don't think I'm going to make it, David had a habit. And his habit was that he would call on the Lord. And notice how in this song, it's this act. It's when David finally just calls on the Lord and asks God for help that a turning point is marked in the text. Look at verse 7. David says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Charles Spurgeon, who's often called the Prince of Preachers, said this. He said, who can resist a cry? A real, hearty, bitter, piteous cry might almost melt a rock. He says, there can be no fear of its prevalence with our Heavenly Father. There is a mighty power in a child's cry to prevail with a parent's heart. There is a mighty power in a child's cry to prevail with a parent's heart. Parents, is that not true? All the parents are nodding. That's totally true. I mean, when you have children and they're younger and they're playing outside, let's say they're playing together, you hear lots of different sounds coming from them. There's laughter. There's arguments. There's the sound of whatever they're doing, you know, bouncing things off the wall or shooting hoops or jumping on a trampoline. You're hearing all of that. And then sometimes you hear cries and you pause and you listen carefully most often you go, okay, it's one of those cries. They're fine. But sometimes there's a certain cry. Parents, you know the kind of cry. And you hear that kind of cry. And no matter what you're doing, you drop what you're doing and you run out to your child. Because it's one of those cries of distress where you know, oh, this isn't just they're crying for attention or they're crying because they're upset. This is them crying because they're in pain. Something has happened to them. And again, no matter what you're doing as a parent, it catches your attention and it moves you in response to come to your child's rescue. 
David says, I called on the Lord and he heard me from his heavenly temple and his ears heard David's cry. So God hears David when David prays and notice now that God, like a good father, leaps into action. God's response to David's cry is colored with cosmic language. And this language highlights two things about God. It highlights on the one hand his holiness, which we sang about in our songs of worship this morning. And on the other hand, this cosmic language speaks of God's omnipotent power. First, notice his holiness or his otherness, that God is distinct from us. In verse 8, we read, The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. In verse 10, we read that he bowed the heavens and came down. In verse 11, it says that he rode on a cherub, which is an angel. And he flew and he was seen on the wings of the wind. And then in verse 14, we read that the Lord thundered from heaven. This cosmic language is communicating to us God's holiness. That God is in a category unto himself. He is in heaven and you and I are on earth. God dwells where no man dwells. And God does things that no man or woman is capable of doing. I don't know when the last time you rode on a cherub was. Or on the, winds, the wings of the wind. This language again is, is meant to communicate that, that this God that David is crying out to. He's different than us. He's in a category unto himself. He's holy and completely separate from us. But it also communicates his power. I just read verse 8 to us, but notice now the reference to the earthquaking. It says, then the earth reeled and rocked. So this text speaks of earthquakes. It speaks in several places of fires. It speaks of lightning strikes and thunder. And all of these kind of natural disasters are meant to convey something of the omnipotent power of God. If you've ever been in a serious lightning or thunderstorm before, you've ever been present when there's a raging fire in the wilderness, like some of the fires that we've had here in our mountains in Santa Barbara, you, you grasp something of the power that those, those natural disasters are capable of. And here David in this song is using this sort of language to con- communicate to us the almighty power of God. And notice in verse 17, this holy and powerful God He comes down to rescue David. Look at verse 17. He sent from on high, so from his heavenly abode, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. Now, this is incredible if you really stop and consider this. I mean, David here, he's acknowledging that this God who is that holy, that different. He's in heaven, we're on earth. And this God who is that powerful that he can rock the foundations of the earth, that he can, with fire, consume the earth, that this God condescends to come and meet David, this tiny little speck on earth, and deliver him from whatever trouble he's facing at that moment in his life. And this was never lost on David. Here's what David says in Psalm 8, 3, and 4. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
and the son of man that you care for him. As David considered God and all of his power in creating the heavens and the earth, David is asking that question, what is, what is one person that you care about me, that you're mindful of me? Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner writes this about this idea. He says that the titanic scale of this scene, so all that cosmic language, is in strange contrast to the small human figure of the singer. Such is the worth, the song implies, of an individual. It's amazing. And friends, I would submit to you this morning that such is the worth that every single child of God is meant to feel. Because just as God came down to rescue David from a certain death, God in Christ came down 2,000 years ago to rescue you and me from a certain death. And it's through God sending Christ down into this world to become man that our sin was dealt, dealt with on the cross and death was defeated for us through the resurrection. And so this same God who condescends to meet David condescends to meet us in our sin and deliver us from death. But not only is God a God who delivers us from death, which is pretty awesome news, by the way. I mean, that's certainly the most important thing. It's the biggest of all of our troubles. But he doesn't just save us from death. He saves us from every single trouble we face over and over and over again in our lives until he ultimately calls us to glory and we do defeat death. And so what this means is that, like David, when you find yourself in a place of distress, in that place of crisis, or when you yourself are faced with death and death seems imminent, we can cry out to God for deliverance and we can trust that he hears us. And even though there are over 7 billion people on planet earth, the one true God who created everything, who is seated on his throne in heaven right now, he hears the cry of every single child of God that calls to him. I mean, when you're sitting at your kitchen table or you're lying in your bed at night or you're driving in your car and you call out to God, he hears you every bit as much as he hears David. And not only does he hear you, but then he mobilizes from his heavenly temple and he rides on the wings of the wind to help you. Praise be to the God who saves. Well, this leads us now to the third division, kind of the middle section of this song, which is verses 21 through 31 to which I've given the heading, The Dealings of the Lord. David here is going to sing about and reflect on God's consistent character and the way that God deals with humanity. He's going to begin, though, with how God has dealt with him personally. This is in verses 21 through 25. For many of us, as we read this passage earlier when Gabe was reading it, this was the most confusing part of the whole psalm. Because notice with me in verse 21 that it says that God dealt with David according to his righteousness. Do you see that there in verse 21? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Then notice down in verse 25, he says, and the Lord rewarded David according to his righteousness. Here's what 25 says. He has rewarded me according to my righteousness. So David here sees that God has a particular way of dealing with the righteous. 
God rewards the righteous. Or you could say it differently. God blesses the righteous. And we see this everywhere in scripture. Here's just one example. This is 1 Peter 3.12. The apostle Peter writes, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God is committed in his word to blessing the righteous every bit as much as he is committed in his word to bringing judgment on the wicked. So David here, in this song that he composes, he sees God's deliverance of him over and over and over again in his life as, listen, the reward of his righteousness. But here's the thing that we need to understand about David's claim to being righteous. David's status as righteous and clean before the Lord is not about him being sinless or him being perfect any more than your status as being righteous before the Lord is about you being sinless or you being perfect. God counts us as Christians as righteous why? Is it because we are perfectly and objectively righteous? Is it because you never ever sin? No, of course not. He counts us as righteous because we have entered into a covenant with him by faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the terms of the covenant. God says to every sinner on planet earth, he says this, if you'll put your full trust in my son Jesus then his death on the cross will be sufficient to cover all of your sins and to make you righteous before me. That's the terms of the covenant. God says, I've made a way for you to be righteous and it's through my son's death and his own righteous life and his resurrection. And if you'll put your full trust in him, his righteousness becomes yours. His death is your death so that you never have to die for your sins. And so even though we're still sinners, for those of us who have put our full trust in Christ, we know that we are righteous before God and we know that that's the reason why we are blessed. We are being blessed by the Father because we are in Christ and we are righteous in him. In the same way, David's righteousness that he speaks about here comes from being in a covenant relationship with God. Beginning back with Father Abraham in the book of Genesis, God made a covenant with his people. And the covenant was, I will bless you like crazy as you live by faith in me. And what does faith look like? Well, their faith in the Lord would be demonstrated through their faithfulness to his covenant. If they really trust the Lord, then they're going to do what he says, right? Just like if we really trust the Lord, we're going to do what he says. And so their faith was demonstrated through faithfulness to the covenant. And David was faithful. David followed the law of God because he trusted in the Lord. Now, every single person here who knows the life of David is going, hold on. Are we all going to just like act like Bathsheba never happened? We're just going to ignore that? What about Bathsheba and her husband Uriah? Well, the answer to that is that in God's covenant with his people, God gave them provision for dealing with their sin, just like in the covenant that we have with the Lord. 
And so when a Jew would sin, there were sacrifices that would be offered to temporarily cover for their sin until the day Christ would come and ultimately pay for those sins and remove them. And so even his sin demonstrates his faithfulness to the covenant because of the way he chose to deal with his sin. Therefore, God's rewarding David and blessing David was not rooted in his own objective righteousness or his sinlessness, but rather it was rooted in God's covenant with him. God had set his love on David and God had promised to bless him as he lived for God. Verse 20 tells us so much. Look at verse 20 in your Bible. It says, he rescued me. Why? Because he delighted me in me. So, so first God delighted in him. God set his love on him and that was the reason why God rescued him. Or look at verse 51. Here's more covenant language. It says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. That word steadfast love, that's covenant language. That means a love that God will never revoke. I committed my love to you. I'm never going to go back. So all of this is rooted in David's covenant with the Lord. David is being blessed by God. But notice David doesn't only praise God for his dealings with him, but with all people. And we see this in verses 26 through 28. Let's read it again together. David says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Generally in life, we reap what we sow. That's what the scriptures teach us. Now the books of Job and Ecclesiastes are in our Bible to show us that sometimes life is more complex than that. But the general rule is that you reap what you've sown. God aligns himself with the merciful, with the innocent, with the underdogs. That is his normal mode of operation. Humble here refers to the poor and the afflicted and the oppressed. So God aligns himself with those people and God opposes the wicked and the treacherous. And because David here is among the humble and the oppressed and the innocent, he once again reflects on God's dealings with him personally in verses 29 through 31. God was the one in verses 29 and 30 to light his lamp, to lighten his darkness, and to give him victory over his enemies. God is consistent in his character. To the merciful, he shows himself merciful. He saves the humble. He stands against the wicked. All of this is consistent with his character. David would summarize this section in verse 31 this way. He says, this God that I've been talking about, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now David's evangelizing a little bit. Now he's saying, listen, I've just told you how God has been faithful to me, how he's been a refuge to me over and over and over again. But guess what? This God, he is perfect. His word will prove true. Every single person who takes refuge in him will experience exactly what I have. God will show up and he'll be a shield for you too. Well, division four now covers verses 32 through 46. And I've given it this heading, yet not I, but Christ through me. 
Now, in a way, this section just retells the episode of verses 8 through 20, when God came down from heaven and he delivered David. That part of the song, though, it was kind of telling the deliverance story from God's side of it. Remember, he's, he's riding on the cherub and he's coming down from heaven. So it kind of it told God's side of it. But now he's going to sing of his deliverance from how he himself experienced the deliverance. And in short, David experienced military victory. In David's life, the enemies that he was constantly faced with were foreign enemies. And David was able to defeat them. So David talks about being swift-footed or having feet of a deer in verse 34. He says he had his hands trained. They were hands of war in verse 35. He talks about bending a bow of bronze in verse 35. Having a shield in verse 36. Overtaking his enemies in verse 38. Having strength for the battle in verse 40. His enemies fleeing and being destroyed in verse 41. Beating his enemies fine as dust in verse 43. Becoming the head of the nations in verse 44. And lastly, he speaks of foreigners serving him and obeying him and surrendering to him out of fear in verses 44 through 46. So David here is describing how he fought against these enemies and he experienced victories, victory over them. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that in all of these military actions and these feats, David sees God as the one who was behind it. David sees that it was God who enabled and empowered him to experience victory. From a human standpoint, other people would have looked at David and just said to themselves, that is a fierce warrior. That guy knows how to fight. That guy knows how to defeat people. That guy is strong. That guy is capable. That guy is somebody you do not want to mess with. That's how other humans would have seen the man David. Remember when the women were singing songs about David in their streets. They were saying, Saul, he killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. All the emphasis was on David and what he was capable of doing. But we've got to see here today in this text that David was never that naive. David understood that it was God's hand that was behind him and that was empowering him and supporting him in all of his successes. In verse 30, we see this. Notice what he says. He says, For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. In verse 34, he says, He made my feet like the feet of a deer. In verse 35, he says, He trains my hands for war. In verse 36, he says, You have given me the shield of your salvation. In verse 37, he says, you gave a wide place for my steps under me. In verse 40, he says, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. And finally, in verse 41, he says, you made my enemies turn their backs to me. What is David doing? David is giving credit where credit is due. He's recognizing, yeah, I jumped over the walls. Yeah, I shot the arrows but you're the one who enabled me to do all of that. Now, I'm not much of a bowler. Maybe it's the shirts. Maybe it's the shoes. I don't know. But bowling is one of those things that I find fun when I do it, but I've never, ever gotten into it. And it's probably because my wife can bowl better than me. She beats me and gets a higher score every time. 
And as her husband, it's just not something I want to experience that often. So I never got into it. But what's interesting about bowling is if I want to get a really good score, and if I want to ensure that I throw zero gutter balls, I can do it. All I have to do is pull out the bumpers. Because once I pull out the bumpers, everything's going to change. Now let's say that I go bowling with my bumpers, and I bowl a 260. That's a great bowling score, a 260. I've probably never even come within 100 of that. But let's say I bowl a 260 with my bumpers. Let me ask you a question. What would you think of me if every single time I talked about bowling with people, I said, hey, my highest score ever was a 260. I bowled a 260 one time. Wouldn't that be lame if that was what I was telling people, that I had bowled a 260 knowing that I had bowled it with bumpers? Now, there is a sense when, in which you could say that I'm being honest. I really did bowl a 260. I physically grabbed the ball. I rolled it down the lane. I was going to say the alley. The alley's the whole thing. I rolled it down the lane, and I actually knocked down that many pins. So, so there's a sense in which it's true. I bowled a 260, but it would be very naive of me to think that I actually bowled a 260 because it would have never happened had I not had the help of the bumpers that I pulled out. And friends, this is how David saw all of the success in his life. David was not naive enough to think that he could go and he could do all of these great feats and experience victory and success without the help of the Lord. And so he gives God the glory for every victory. And it would be wise for us to do the same. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the songs we've been singing of late here is called, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. And as Christians, it's okay to acknowledge our blessings and our successes. And we can even do so in a way that brings glory to God, but it's only by giving credit where credit is due. Okay, fifth division, and we'll wrap up. Verses 47 through 51. Here's the heading. This song agrees better with Christ. Let me read and explain. Look at verse 47. David writes this, he says, The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Notice David, he ends this song where he began with praise to the Lord. In verse 47, he wants to bless the Lord. He wants to exalt God. He wants to, in verse 50, sing praises to your name. And why does he want to sing these praises to God's name? Well, verse 51 told us it's because of God's salvation in his own life and God's promise to bless his offspring after him, which is a reference to the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. David knew God has delivered me and God promises that he will establish my kingdom forever. And ultimately that promise was proven true when a son of David named Jesus of Nazareth came into the world and is seated on the throne of David ruling over the people of God forever. Significantly, the apostle Paul quotes verse 50 in Romans chapter 15 and he treats it as a direct prophecy about Jesus. Let me read it for you. 
He says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As, is, as it is written, and now he quotes verse 50, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. What does that mean? That David would apply Psalm 22 directly to Jesus. It means this, that 2 Samuel chapter 22 in this song is about David most immediately. But it means that the Holy Spirit inspired these words to find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, John Calvin, the famous reformer, says much of this song agrees better with Christ. What does he mean by that? What does he have in mind? Well, when God promises to show steadfast love to his anointed, the Hebrew word there is Messiah in verse 51, that promise applies more fully to Jesus. When God made David the head of the nations in verse 44, friends, that's just a precursor to Christ as the ultimate head of the nations. When David here talks of God dealing with him according to his righteousness, Jesus could say that in the ultimate sense. David's was a relative righteousness, but Jesus's was a true and objective righteousness. When David recounts how the cords and snares of death and the grave were around him, he knows only a fraction of the reality that Christ would endure. And when David celebrates God delivering him from temporal death, Jesus could celebrate that God delivered him eternally from the grave and its power. And thus, we can see what Derek Kidner meant when he wrote, every theme of this song was to gain new depth with Christ. And so church, this morning, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, ought to draw great encouragement from this song that was written some 3,000 years ago. Just as God was David's salvation, so too is he our salvation. And just as the promises of God were fulfilled in David's lifetime, in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your promises to your people. God, we thank you for the life of David that we've had the privilege of studying together for many months. God, we thank you that over and over again in David's life, we see that the constant thing is your faithfulness. The constant thing is that you chose David and you set your love upon David and therefore you would protect and deliver and bless him. And God, we know that for every one of us who have put our faith in Christ, we know that we are children of God and we know that that means that you love us and that you chose us and that you have set your heart on us and that you will deliver us from every single trial or trouble we face. And so Lord, today we pray you would strengthen our faith. We pray today that no matter what's going on in our lives, you would fill us with hope, renew our hope. And God, we pray that our reaction to every distress and every crisis and every trouble would be to call on our Heavenly Father. God, we love you. We worship you today. We honor you. And it's our desire now to sing one final song of praise to you just like David was accustomed to doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.